Welcome to the Burning Eye podcast. My name is Bridget. I'm the co-editor of Burning Eye Books and your host for this episode and all of actually all of the episodes that you've been listening to. It's been me chatting away to different poets. Um, this year we've revived the podcast um, in the face of COVID-19 and we've been doing some interviews with the poets that are releasing books in 2020 and I'm absolutely delighted to have on the show with us today the wonderful James McDermott. Hi James! Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. It's so nice to finally have you. I feel like we've been moving through everybody and I've been like getting excited about doing each one for each person, which has been really nice. Well, as I was saying to you before we started recording, I've been listening into all of them and uh, yeah, they've just been a joy and a real sense of company on walks in lockdown. So it's very nice to finally get to come on and do one myself. Yeah, so we're, um, we're talking about your new book, Manatomy. Um, which came out last week. Yes. Yeah. How's it been so far in the since re- the release? Uh, it feels talking for the word release. It feels almost like the end of a sexual experience, if you like. That it's been four, kind of four <laughs> years worth of four years worth of foreplay in terms of the writing of it, and then uh, I remember you telling me you were going to publish it on April Fool's Day last year, which I thought was a joke until you actually put in an email, James. I mean it. It's not a joke. Uh, so I've, I've kind of known for a year that it's been happening and then all that excitement that build up that gathering of quotes gathering of editing the poems and then finally it's here uh, just like the end of that experience if you like it's incredibly thrilling but also okay what now what, do I, what am I supposed to do that especially if I can't go out and take it to theatres or bookshops uh, so it's been a great experience to finally have it and to finally hold the copy but such a strange time to release it in a recession and a pandemic where I can't go to audiences with it and whilst I've tried to do lots of online events and really, really uh, enjoy them in so many ways, you, you don't really know if the work's properly landing until it's in front of people. Yeah, absolutely. I know what you mean. It's definitely, definitely been a theme, running theme with everyone that I've chatted to on the podcast so far about the lack of um, physical space to share with audience and, and performances and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, and the nuances of having that audience there, you know, when you land a line, does it land or not? You know, when you do online mm. stuff, there's no applause, there's no interaction there. And that can be quite daunting. You kind of feel like you're talking to an empty room. <laughs> yeah, I think a big part of the reason that I uh, wanted to write poetry as well is I've predominantly written lots of plays and think that's linked to my feeling uncomfortable speaking as myself when I first started writing quite young and yeah the older I've got the more I've wanted to speak for myself and speak about great experiences for myself and the book was really the catalyst to allow me to do that and uh, I'm yet to be able to do that with lots of the poems in the book whereas lots of them have been performed I haven't performed lots of them in front of people for a very long time if at all so it's yeah just kind of feeling like the dramatic intention underneath the book that this is me being able to speak for myself uh I still feel like I'm not yet to do because I can't put it in front of people. Yeah, of course. So with your, you know, you've come from a playwriting background. You've got um, a number of award-winning plays under your belt, um, um, which is really cool and exciting. You just wrapped up one at the beginning of the year. We did, yeah. So we had a plan called Time and Tide at the Park Theatre, which closed literally a week before theatres closed. It was so jammy that we managed to get the whole run in. Because yeah, if, if it had gone on a month later, it could have been just so sad to kind of again that was four years in getting to production and just the thought of the play that went in after is rehearsing 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 and then being told sorry can't have it I can't imagine anything more painful artistically so uh, yeah. It was, yeah I'm really really glad it got a life 
so you um, have, so I wanted to actually ask you, you know, what came first, performance poetry or playwriting for you? Plays came first and they came from a secondary school, just kind of drama, the drama department there being a place where I could uh, actually not perform, if you like. I felt like life was the performance and drama at school was a place where I could be camp and uh, be other people and be silly without any judgment. So plays came around there about 16, uh, writing short plays at school and doing plays at uni. I studied script writing at UEA and poetry then came out of my frustration with lots of aspects of being a playwright the fact that if you write something it might take three years to get on and the fact that it costs so much money to make and see and the fact that so few people get to see it because unlike a book it kind of exists for four weeks and uh, I got into performance poetry through always reading it and enjoying it but never thinking it was something for me again partly because I was uh, kind of so used to talking through characters because I didn't feel comfortable talking to myself um, and then I read Dean Atter's book, uh, I Am Nobody's Nigger, which I just thought was a fantastic poetry collection and inspired me to start talking really, really candidly about my truth as a gay person and thought, okay, well, I don't want to do that through plays anymore. I want to do that through poetry. And that, that idea as well, that if you write a poem in the morning, you can gig it at an open mic night at night. You don't have to wait three, three years to get something on. Yeah. And I didn't have those gatekeepers saying well we can't do your gay play because we've just done this gay writers play this year uh there was space for every kind of queer voice within the poetry scene which i don't think is always the case in theater so in short plays came first and then poetry came as a reaction to uh lots of things that i found really frustrating about uh the time restraints and restrictions and the financial costs of plays as well i think writing about working class queer lives in the theater uh, in the last couple of years, but certainly this one, it struck me as a strange thing. It feels like the wrong form to express that because so few working class queer people can make it out to those shows that might be in London for a month and a 30 quid a ticket. Yeah. Whereas writing a book of poems that's a tenor and will live longer than four weeks or performing at an open mic night where it's free to go and see uh, just feels like it's going to reach that audience uh, far more successfully than a play. Yeah. And I think that what you've really targeted your audience well in all manner of, of the book that you've released down to the incredibly beautiful rainbow cover. Yeah. Which is um, stunning, by the way. I love that. I love it's that cute, it's so bold. It? You know, other, I know a lot of queer poets that would really, like I myself would never think about doing that, but I love the way that you have just really embraced it and made it. Um, because a lot of the time there's a lot of queer stuff out there that, that you in a bookshop you wouldn't think about it maybe being queer because maybe the cover doesn't reflect that in any way whereas yours is very yeah. proudly queer um and so that signifier is like people will go to that on the shelf and be like this is this is for me this book's for me absolutely i think i wanted that in that savvy sense of i wanted it to pop on the shelf and people knew who it was for uh but also i like the directness of it that kind of reflects that tone of the book and there's something quite childlike about the pastel nature of that cover as well yeah and lots of the book feels like it's about childhood and adolescence so it just felt like it was uh apt and right for it and closed on a beautiful job of uh making that cover yeah the the book itself as well it's sort of um i can sort of tell that you're a playwright reading the book because there's the characterization that you do in there um the whole way through is is really engaging and really relatable and that's something that i picked up 
when um, you came through through the open submissions and I was reading it and it really stood out to me because I immediately felt connected with the material even though I'm, um, I haven't experienced thing, the things that you have experienced, I was immediately drawn into what you were saying and I think that's, that's when you know you have a good writer that's going to be able to speak to a lot of, lot of different types of people. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask about, you know, what tools that you took from playwriting into writing the collection. Yeah, well, first and foremost, thank you for that beautiful comment on the book. I think that's that came from the editing process when uh, a poet and one of my good friends and writer mentors, a chap called Luke Wright, said to me that politics is pointless unless you make it about people. Just making big grand statements about homophobia uh, isn't going to land unless you personify it and show the effects that has on people. So I think lots of the characterization came from that gesture. Uh, can I ask what the second part of the question was? I've just completely forgotten. I'm talking oh, about... Oh, just, just uh, what tools that you... Tool, playwriting tools, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think definitely that sense of character and uh, using, uh, using people to dramatise a theme and to explore a theme as opposed to just making sweeping statements about a theme. I think that's a tool that's come from playwriting. Economy of language. I think playwriting is so similar to poetry in that both forms are about brevity and trying to say as much as possible through as little as possible. I think playwriting, more than screenwriting to some extent, is all about images. You're trying to build images in people's heads and create stage pictures. And I think that's something that I've drawn a lot of inspiration from when trying to write images and metaphors in the poems. Uh, I think as well, playwriting, I've had a long, uh, kind of argument with myself that you can't be funny in plays because lots of people have said to me in script meetings you can't be that funny in plays and I've only just started to accept that that's nonsense that <laughs> sense of if people laugh at something in a live event you know that they've heard what you've said processed it and given a final response to it and uh, I don't understand I think people are scared of humor in plays because lots of people can't do humor properly and they're intimidated by people that can and I think I felt similarly about poetry writing that you can't put jokes in your poems because they've got to be serious and they've got to all be like Ode to a Grecian Urn. And then just the more you read and write, the more you realise that's ridiculous. So I think I've taken that uh, sense of liveness and sense of humour that I would bring to playwriting and tried to add that to the poetry as well. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and um, being such a diverse writer and being able to um, move between script writing and then writing poetry is... Mm -hmm. um, something that you've done really really well um with Manitomi I really like um the way that you've done it and the collection as well has from the initial submission of the final manuscript to to what it is by the end you know there was a lot of there was a lot of cutting and changing even right up to to the end which was great to have that collaborative um relationship with you when we were doing the typesetting and kind of saying actually I don't know about this poem and or, or maybe this could be like that and you coming to me and being like actually there's several poems that I would like to take out because our, yeah. our advice is as for first books is to it, it's better to be shorter than to be longer well yeah I think I think when you first said that we'll do the book there's always that little voice that says okay if this is your only book pop everything in and yeah. then you undo that narrative that you told yourself and think okay this is your best work not your life's work that's what's got to go in there and uh, when I was editing it and when we were working on it together to edit it, that's when Luke said that thing to me about uh, make sure if you are writing political poems that there's people at the heart of them and not just you soapboxing. And I think there's space for soapboxing sometimes, but uh, 
it feel I know through that playwriting toolkit and playwriting training that uh, the kind of worst plays are when you hear the writer monologuing in a character's mouth. And I thought, well, take that temperament to the book and how you edit it. And I think yeah. those ones we did cut were the ones that were quite speechy and angry. And I'm sure the arguments within them will come back in uh, different work, but hopefully far more subtly. Yeah, I think there's such a temptation, isn't there, when you're representing a certain type of community that you want to make sure that you're covering all the bases of that community. Yes, um, And you can fall into a trap of ended up ending up talking about things that you don't have any experience in and therefore you you generalise and you, you're yeah. telling rather than showing. Um, so it was really good to like, yeah, go through that with you. And because Manatomi is such, um, you know, a streamlined collection for a certain group of people I think as well within the queer community which is very heavily politicized in itself mm. um, and has so many different um, uh, fractions and things like that like the the way to do it is to just go on it with your experience and add that to the conversation yeah. rather than rehashing what other people are saying and saying it better because that's what their experience is. Yeah I think that's so well articulated and I remember when I was compiling the original submission to Sentium when I was editing it thinking okay have you got your gay love poem in there have you got your shame poem in there have you got your gay scene poem in there and it was kind of, kind of came this tick list that uh that thing i would normally hate in scriptwriting meetings that you have to represent a whole community as a gay writer and yeah. can't just write a story i thought don't bring that sensibility to the book and there was also that conflict between uh why should i be subtle and metaphorical why can't i just be angry and say how horrible it is sometimes to live in a heteronormative society and that had to be reined in a little bit and think okay well you're not a politician or a madman on a box in a park just to mean you're saying this is poetry so it's got to be artful in some way so there was always that sense of i hid for 18 years before i came out if you like i don't want to hide behind metaphors and subtlety uh and balancing that kind of anger with uh craft was uh, a good exercise but it's one as, I, as we said kind of came late I was still doing that and having that argument with myself right up until we went to print yeah absolutely but I think that's a, a great sign of someone that's really taking the care and the consideration over the book um which you've yeah. you've displayed while we've gone along the process um and your so the book split into three sections mm. and I just wanted to ask why you decided to lay out like there's loads of possible ways to lay out a poetry book but why did you decide that putting yeah. them in those sections was important for you i think it comes from that playwriting sensibility of three act structure in stories i think that would have worked either consciously or unconsciously in my thinking when i was first thinking about the collection uh it feels almost like an equation if you like that boyhood experiences plus adolescent experiences equals the man you become yeah uh, so it felt like it had that nice structure there. Uh, and the first uh, third of the book, that boy section, was originally going to be written as a solo play. And uh, I didn't really fancy doing a solo play again because I did a play in 2016 called Rubber Ring, which I had a really nice time doing in many ways, but it was also the loneliest time. Uh, and a bad time for mental health because I was either on trains on my own, in cheap hotels on my own, in bars, after shows on my own, or in a dressing room. And I thought, I don't fancy doing a play again, but I really like the writing in this boy section. Maybe there's something in it, but there's not enough there on its own. So maybe write some more stuff. And that's where that concept of, okay, you've written about boyhood now, write about teenage time and man time. Uh, I think that's where that came from as well. How important is it for you to be able to represent those experiences for the queer community? 
it feels I think when I started writing it was almost unconscious that uh, this is the thing I want to talk about and I haven't been able to talk about it at school so tell your truth and it was quite selfish it was all about me and this is me this is what I've hidden habit and as I've got older and read more and thought more about all these things it feels like at a time when so much crap is written by uh, non-LGBTQ people about the LGBT community I feel like I have a mission to uh, speak authentically as a member of that community about what's really going on. I think the transphobia and the non-binary phobia that's around at the minute is uh, poisonous and it feels like it is, uh, it feels like underneath it is still a lot of homophobia as well, that sense of uh, there's still so much to write against and write about I think. So I feel like as a member of that community I do have to speak about it and yeah. to write to write thrillers or to write uh kind of cartoons is all valid of course if that's what you want to do but i think if i did that and didn't write about lgbtq lies i would feel a bit mucky and a bit like i'm letting myself and my heritage down which sounds very grand but i really don't think it is i think it is uh that kind of mission underneath the playwriting and teaching and poetry writing i think it's what gets me up in the morning that sense of uh you've got to do this because so many people will misrepresent. And I know as yeah. so many LGBTQ people know the danger of seeing misrepresentations of yourself or not seeing yourself in school. I think I'm a writer partly because I'm writing the things I wanted to read when I was a kid and they weren't on the curriculum. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And we all, we all know the danger of seeing the wrong representation of yourself, be that through news or a negative TV series, whatever it is. Yeah. So I feel it kind of short answers that question kind of a real militance about writing lgbtq truth yeah and i think for any um underrepresented group of people it is important to be able to write that experience yourself and put that out into the world yes um and because your poetry is very accessible you know it's very um frank and like i said before very mm. quickly relatable i mm. think that that's also an encouraging aspect of it i mean some of your writing reminds me of through your blood by toby campion yeah, I love that collection. It's partly why I wanted Burning Eyes to publish the book, actually. Yeah, because it's, it, it, it kind of, it, it, for me, it kind of adds to that conversation that Toby's having about being a gay working class man um, yeah. in a particular area um, and saying it in a way that is gentle and funny, but there's, there's, there's truth and there's, there's learning to be had at the heart of it. And I think that's what your work brings out when you read it. I think especially for people that are coming into it that are outside of the LGBT community. Um, I think your book is an excellent manual for people. You know, I would, I would recommend it to people that were like, I don't know anything about, or my son's come out as gay. What should I do? I'd be like, you should read James's book. <laughs> that's a, that's got the most beautiful praise I've had from it. I think that's just a gorgeous thing to say. And I think, yeah, that's something I've, kind of took from Toby even before I wanted to write a book that sense of he writes about gay working class life in a way that's accessible to working class people mm. uh, and it took me a long time to realize you can do that as a poet or a playwright you think you've got to learn to write like Shakespeare or Keats uh, for, or I certainly did I'm projecting I thought that's how I had to learn how to write and then uh, a gay working class playwright called Tom Weld said to me once you do realize your writing voice can sound like your speaking voice yeah all that camp, all that bounce, all that silliness can be on the page. And I, that just changed how I write. I thought it was a fantastic thing to say. And see that in Toby's work as well. I think it's beautiful. 
Yeah, I think like the, the the poetry community that we have and the independent presses, poetry presses that we have, like like us and Pen in the Margins and Outspoken and Verve, um, mm. do an amazing job of of representing people's autonomy and making yeah. sure that their their real voice is being heard and and destroying that stigma of like all poets have to sound the same we all have to write in a particular way we all have to have that kind of uniform thing because i was also the same and spent a lot of time being very uncomfortable because i was not writing from my own voice mm. you know i was always trying to please other people um and what they wanted rather than and then also that realization of like well actually even if i do write in this way and i do get into this community i'm just writing for a bunch of people that don't understand me anyway so what's the point absolutely no i felt exactly the same and i remember just playwriting mentors people like jonathan harvey saying to me at the beginning when we had those chats about i think i've got to cut lots of jokes in my plays because people say it's a bad thing and he said james if you don't enjoy your work no one else is going to because if <laughs> if you make something that you don't enjoy uh then no one's enjoyed that work before it goes out in the world. So the chances are no one's going to enjoy receiving it. But he said, if you love what you make and it makes you laugh and it makes you fizz and tingle a little bit, the chances are someone else is going to. Uh, it's such a simple lesson. It sounds so obvious, but you can get so caught up in, I've got to get in, I've got to, it's got to be important, it's got to be mighty, it's got to be clever, uh, yeah. that you forget it's just, it's got to be you and that's what people want and that's why you'll work because you've got something to say. Uh, but you, that can get so lost in so many other things. Yeah, agreed. I, I do agree with that. Yeah. So you're uh, based in Norwich. Um, we've had, you briefly mentioned Luke Wright, which is Luke. Is yeah. Luke Norwich based as well? So I do live in Norfolk. I don't live in Norwich. I live by the coast in, oh, okay. in a place called High Kelling. And Luke is in Bungie in, I think that's Suffolk. So it's out right. towards out towards the Suffolk coast and I'm on the Norfolk coast. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're... Um, but the, the kind of so that um, I used to have friends in that lived in in Norwich um, that were part of my DIY punk community and I remember having to get the mega bus there and <laughs> from London and just being like four hours on this really long yeah. road with endless roadworks yes. to, to the elbow of the country um, and obviously we published Molly Naylor who's also from Norfolk yeah lovely Molly yeah love, love Molly um, we published um, her book Stop trying to be fantastic earlier this year. Um, I love Molly because Molly has that similar, um, very down to earth, um, accessible writing. That's funny, yes. you know. It, yes. there's, there's a very dry humour in there. Um, and I just kind of wanted to know more about the kind of regional community where you are in terms of what there is for performance poets. So there's fantastic venues in Norwich, like Norwich Arts Centre. Uh, run by a wonderful man called Pasco, who is uh, his kind of personal obsession is live performance and spoken word and live arts. It's kind of something every Wednesday or was something every Wednesday before lockdown called uh, Live Art Club. And they would have uh, just radical performance art or really, really interesting spoken word. So Norwich Arts Centre tends to be that hub for great poets. They're run by a chap called Lewis, Lewis Buxton. They do something called Toast Poetry. And I think that's every month where uh, there'll be two headlining poets, one of whom is always male identifying, one of whom is always female identifying, uh, or somewhere on the spectrum, everyone's represented in terms of that gender spectrum. It's never just two men. Uh, and then there's lots of floor spots to support those major acts as well. So that happens every month. Pascal programmed something at the Arts Centre. Uh, every week, I think there's some kind of spoken word out. So that's the main hub of it. But so many 
lovely pubs in Norwich will have spoken word nights every week. Lots of rural theatres near me, kind of showing a little theatre, Wells Maltings, have started uh, having poetry readings in the cafes there. So it's all there. And I part of the reason I've stayed in Norfolk as well is because you can either hunt it out and then it means more than just having everything on the doorstep that you might have if you live in a big city. Yeah. And you can make it. I think if you want to do something, uh, if you go to a place where millions of people are doing it, that's a potentially really exciting thing. But also if you stay in a place where it's not happening, you can make it and it can become yours and you can have far more... Uh, far more practice at creating something building something producing something uh and i think that's why lots of people have stayed in norfolk as well there is that sense of if you want to be a writer an actor in london there's so many opportunities there but there's thousands of people chasing them if you want to do it in norfolk there might be fewer opportunities on the surface but then make them happen and enable each other and i think there's that real sense of community within that new writing scene in norfolk because we do we all produce stuff as well as write stuff and uh all enable each other yeah that's really nice we um there is like um this the thing in in the poetry world especially performance poetry world where everything is very london centric you know all the big things happen in london there's like a big london community and i feel sometimes people that are not from london miss out on london gigs um because they're not part of the in crowd um and one of the things i love about my job is being able to read regional voices and find out yes. more about you know where they've come from. So on the podcast, I've spoken to Kieran Hodges about the, mm. the scene in Liverpool, Leanne Modern about um, the scene in Nottingham, um, and now we're talking about Norfolk. And just, you know, I don't think people realise that there's all of these things that are going on regionally that they can, they can get to and get involved in, Absolutely. instead of being like, well, I've got to go to London because that's where everything's happening. It's exactly the same in the playwriting world as well, that kind of London is the pot of gold at the end of that theatrical rainbow, if you like. And uh, very, this is a sweeping statement to some extent, but with lots of friends, I think London is getting so expensive that lots of interesting people just can't afford to be there. You'll get in this monoculture of voices uh, by people who can afford to be in such an expensive place and have the time to write. That, but interestingly for the places they're from, be that Norfolk, Brighton, Liverpool, uh, Bristol, lots of all those interesting people are going back home and making those places phenomenal. Yeah. I think that is a really positive thing uh, about that sense of London is famous for being that kind of plethora of voices, but it's getting so expensive that people just can't afford to be there anymore. And so they're going home and making those places they thought they had to leave incredibly exciting. And I think that's certainly true of Norfolk. Yeah. I think that's one thing to be kind of said about lockdown as well, that it's really bridged those gaps between those regional places yes um you know and made london not as important not that you know sorry london no offense <laughs> i'm not sorry i'm not sorry london <laughs> it's, it's nice you know i've done workshops with people um you know and there'll be people from syria there people from china there you know these kinds of things we do online yeah. things the um the ig book launches that we've been doing you know people have been tuning in from like france germany mm. um uh, which has been amazing and like yeah all, all around the country as well you know anyone can come to an online event um so i think that's really changed the landscape and how people are accessing their poetry yeah it has i remember you saying in another podcast as well i think it was with molly that so many people who might not be able to get to gigs because of anxiety or they're being a wheelchair user whatever it might be are having access to so much more spoken word and at workshops that they couldn't have had before because they either couldn't afford the train fare or didn't fancy going out 
uh, and being in a big public space with lots of people. And I think that's just mm. a joyous thing that I hope we keep post lockdown. I hope kind of digital gigs and digital workshops can exist alongside real space, real time things to reach uh, that massive community of people that might not feel comfortable going out to a big yeah. public event. Yeah, I, I hope the same. And I, I think that Burning Eye will continue to do um, have an online. Play. I mean, we are such a digital press anyway. Um, yes. We do everything online. Everything we do is um, via email. Um, last year, we did the Burning Eye convention which was the first time that we've got all of the poets that we're publishing in a year together. There's I poets remember. in the past yeah. that I've published and I've never even met them. You wow. know, and, and that's something that I'm never that comfortable with because I'm like, well, if I'm going to publish your work, I want to know who you are. Yeah, of course. You know, I need to, I want to scope you out a little bit. So yeah, well, last year we did the Burning Eye Convention, thanks to the Arts Council money. And it was the first time anything like that has happened for a press. I, I, you know, a, a, an indie poetry press that has done that. Um, and speaking to some of the other people that were attended there um, and them, you know, praising what we'd done and saying that it was um, solidifying, but also just made the whole experience very real. I think having dig the digital world is great, but I, I feel like people are still still not connecting with it enough for it to be real for them. Agreed. Uh, I think I remember that convention as well very fondly in that sense of I think it was the first time I met Tom Denby and found his work which has really really uh, been important to me in lockdown and what I'm thinking of doing next but also it's that sense of you realise you're part of that community that Burning Life family which I think people have said on other podcasts as well yeah that especially being a poet in Norfolk that feels almost oxymoronic to say sometimes that sense of being being part of a community of poets who uh, can gather together from all over the country and you realise, okay, well, so many people are doing this in places that aren't London and here we all are and it's a really lovely thing. Uh, I think the hardest part with digital gigs as well, speaking practically, is that sense of getting the books into people's hands. I think if people come and see you at a live event uh, or a workshop, then the work can be sold and find them that way. But uh, I think that's something that I will be glad of when we can do those live performances that you can have those books and you can have that experience and you can hear people's stories at the end i think certainly writing about lgbtq poetry lgbtq lives uh the my favorite part of the gig if you like is meeting people afterwards who shared their life stories with you yeah and um, that's something that you can't get online because people don't want to put that in an insta chat and of course they don't <laughs> uh so i've really missed that yeah yeah i can imagine let's talk a little bit about your instagram book launch that you did the other day how did yes. you how how was it for you how did you find it uh how did i find it i uh really enjoyed the fact i got to mark the moment of that book's release and people seemed uh positive in their responses to it but it did it felt quite comic in that sense of I was I'd, I'd dressed up pop a bit of aftershave on and I was just chatting in my phone for an hour it felt <laughs> yeah. quite strange uh I, I just missed the event of a gig I think that sense of because I spend so much time uh, at home anyway writing uh part of the joy of being a performance poet is that you get to go out and mm. you get to pop a nice shot and you get to go meet people you get to socialize and performing at night or running a workshop at night in a theatre or whatever is always my treat for being good as a writer in the day I can justify being disciplined in the day because I think okay well if you work the time's going to go quicker and then you get to go out mm. so I mean yeah I missed the event of uh reading and that made me realize that a lot but I think it was the first uh online poetry reading I'd given 
uh, and I thought, okay, well, it's lovely that we're marking the publication, but also, oh God, I realise I miss reading and performing more than I thought I did. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is such a shame to miss out on the book launches because I've said this on previous podcasts. Like it, it's that party that you get at the end of all of your hard work, you know, that you get yeah. to celebrate. And it's almost like I remember when I did my book launch, my pamphlet. I felt like I was getting married to myself. Like everyone was there, <laughs> you know, for me. Um, everyone yes. was celebrating me, and like it was great. It was, it was such a nice celebration. You're like, yeah, I have worked really hard. You know, because yes. sometimes, like you say, you, you, you can do plays and then like four weeks later it's over and, and you're like constantly moving yeah. through these achievements and maybe not processing them. Whereas a book launch is like, you get to have that emotional connectivity with people, you know, and you get yeah. to tell people how much this book means to you and, and how much work you put into it and they will love it. And, and you know, you get to sit there and just kind of books for people. And I'm yes. really sad that the 2020 poets have to miss out on that. Um, Hearing you say that, that really struck. I love that analogy that it's like marrying yourself. Um, uh, I think it just hearing, I hadn't thought of it like being an opening night for a play or a kind of post play party, but there is something like that. And it's also that balance of if I had in person book launches, I would feel very, very comfortable talking about the book all the time. But I think there's always that little bit in your head of all I've posted about on social media for the last couple of months is the book, and it feels so self absorbed. And I've had to tell friends who have called it out that sense of look I've got a book to sell when I can't get out in person and I think yeah. you, you, you wouldn't feel that sense of uh, oh god I'm a big narcissist or uh, all I'm doing is talking about myself if you if you had those in-person events because they feel a little more legitimized uh, but I, yeah I've just had a lot of kind of self-argument about oh god don't post about it again but you think, well, you've got to because you can't go out and do this signing or you can't go out and do this reading yeah yeah, we have this, um, you know, Burning Eyes publishing model is based on the fact that our poets promote themselves. They promote and sell their own books. It yes. gives you the most autonomy. It also gives you the most um, sale money that we can possibly give you. Um, and I think, you know, I think we did a little section at the, at the convention last year where I was saying you have to get over that, that, that kind of doubt and yeah. that kind of self-consciousness of promoting Absolutely. yourself. Because... If you want to be an artist and if you want to be an independent artist, this is what you have to do. There's plenty yeah. of middle-class white men out there that do it all the time and they don't even think about it. They're just like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. So That's it's, it's nice well, that you're like, oh, a bit worried about it, but also it's important. And yeah, you're right. It, you're, you've got a book out. Um, and yeah. it's, it's good to be visible with it. You know, The more visible the book is, the more in people's minds it will be. Yes, no, that's very true, and so true what you say as well about the, the straight white man would feel comfortable doing it. Uh, but it, it's that finding that balance, I think that's what I'm learning to do as well, of uh, put something back in that community by shouting about other people's books nearly as much as you shout about your own. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, finding that will make you less of a bore on social media, but as you say, you've got a book to sell. So, girl, got to work, got to do it. Yeah, yeah, I've got to feed my <laughs> stomach. I don't know why I said that, that weird. <laughs> yeah so you're you've done a couple of other things after the book launch um you did a little interview on gadio which i was so excited about because i love gadio so much why do you love it so much because I, I know you said to me you're really excited about that i wasn't really i, I even retweeted it on the burning eye page i'm so excited about it <laughs> i love it because um like i have 
have worked the whole time through lockdown at home doing burning eye stuff and Clive's been yeah. ill so I've been doing a lot of it but you know a lot more work than I would usually be doing the whole time and you know the books are perpetually coming out you know every couple of weeks so there's always something to do and I'm working at home and it's quite lonely because I live alone in a garage with my hamster oh, and wow. she's, not, she's not very talkative um, <laughs> surprisingly um, and so I, I like to listen to the radio because it makes me feel like there's other people in the room. Like I used to work in a yes. big um, office, like when I was like 20 and, you know, the radio would be on, but everyone would be chatting and like, you wouldn't mm -hmm. have to necessarily join in with the conversations, but it was the comfort to know that there were other people um, going on. And I've listened to a lot of different radio stations in lockdown. I started off on classical FM because I felt like I really needed the gentleness of it. Then I got annoyed that that was too middle class. Um, so then I started like moving around stations and I just like all the news, basically it was the new, every time the news interrupted, I would get annoyed and turn it off because it was all yes. just like crap. And the thing I love about Gadio is that they talk about trans people and non-binary people, like they're yeah. visible there and it makes me feel included and, and that, and the news is always about LGBT people um the, that they're always the focus and i think yep. i started listening to it and I, I remember just being like finally i found the club i want to go to yes no i get that i think my love of gadio when you say that is that sense of uh it speaks about those kind of uh what other people might deem as really really radical uh news and stories and people on the oldest form just on mm. a radio and i think the fact this is on a radio where you normally listen to the archers is just gorgeous so i think that's why i really like at gadio and really wanted to go on i thought i just really love the fact it exists and it has the i love a pun as you'll know if you've read the book mm. people mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's got the best cost the best name for a radio channel ever it really does my so only good. critique would be maybe to have more or less ma male djs that's yes. my only critique because there's a lot I of get them. That. I think that's true of everything though, isn't it? Kind of mm. every channel, every uh, panel show. I hope that is addressed eventually. But it's certainly true in uh, the gay world as well. Someone said to me a couple of months ago that really shook me, but I think actually it's so good to check this privilege within the scene that the most powerful person in theatre is a gay white man. Because so many mm. theatre producers or writers or directors are uh, gay white men. I thought actually, it's so true. So it's making sure but on those LGBTQ platforms that it isn't, as it always seems to have been, the dominance. Uh, yeah. But that voice belongs to a gay white man, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, what I felt really encouraging about reading your book was that the inclusivity of trans people that you, that you talk about in your book. There's a couple of poems in there for your trans friends. Yeah. And like even that just simple couple of poems of inclusion is enough to make me feel comfortable and be like, okay, this is not a gay man that is um, uh, maybe conservative with a small C. <laughs> yeah. And, and it is thinking about the wider community, which that I've come across before with, with gay men where it's been like, it's their rights that are important, not the rest of us. <laughs> yes, it makes me happy to hear that. Thank you for saying that. I think it's, it's always that struggle that uh, I've kind of had internally with that sense of, oh, if something isn't my experience, do I have the right to write about it? But that sits alongside that thing. If you have a platform and someone's given you a publication, uh, then you have to include people. Yeah. Um, so it's always that conflict between this might not fill up my experience, so I can't go near it as a writer. But at the same time, yes, you have get over that. Talk to people, try and represent the experience authentically because you have to include people. Yeah. yeah.
yeah 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 so i think you've done that really well and um so what what other what other spots have you been doing other than the the instagram and gaydio what have i been doing so i've potentially got one of my favorite gigs ever coming up so my local bookshop in my norfolk town holt uh, has heard about the book and they've asked me to go and do uh a reading very very soon and Amazing. kind of an, out, an outdoor signing which i can't wait to kind of queer halt it's this <gasps> chocolate chocolate box town where you'd expect murders to happen but they never do because nothing <laughs> that interesting happens there uh so i'm looking forward to doing that uh just more instagram things as well talking to lots of uh lgbtq poets we did something on the house of rhymes uh i did a reading with them the other night uh yeah just trying to get it to as many people as possible uh in a way that kind of feels like a really easy time to do that because of the internet it can have far more reach globally than potentially a book launch could at norwich art center yeah so just really maximizing that opportunity yeah yeah i can't i can't believe we're going to do an outside gig with with people That's i know so exciting it's, it's, it is strange but i because it's a dinky little bookshop and they've got this dinky little courtyard there's always that fear that we could only have kind of me there for it to be safe just to mean that it's too small to have an audience so i hope people come uh but i'm yeah it'll be really really nice and norwich theater royal uh they've kind of led the way in so many things with theaters and the pandemic they've built a massive circus tent next to theater royal where they've been hosting stand-up and spoken word Amazing. and they're, they're doing a fringe day on the 13th of september and i'm going to do a live reading there as well which is poem i was worried about it thinking okay is it going to be dangerous but then i thought james it's poems in a circus tent that's a campus thing you've got to do it so, <laughs> I, I can't wait to do that it's 13th of september on there it'll make you feel like you're at a festival it will i'm going to pretend that it's latitude and it kind of is it's it, it's been really well attended they've had lots of people going to see jimmy carr was there not long ago uh who else has been they've just had uh susie ruffle was there a lesbian comedian cool. so, yeah they've just had really good names that sounds great Oh, I'm really excited for you. I'm going out for dinner tonight with my friend. We're doing the eat out to help out thing. Dinner? Um, is that dinner gin? Dinner, gin yeah. dinner. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, I've never heard that expression before. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so, like, this is like the first time I've been out to eat since lockdown, I think. And like, okay. um, I, the, the thing I'm most excited about is that I don't have to eat dinner off of my, my lap tray or at my desk. Yes. <laughs> it was kind of those first eat out uh to help out things were very very angst inducing i think uh, i went i've been out to a pub a couple of times sat in norfolk beer gardens with friends but went into my local the other day and uh just packed kind of tourists love a love fish and chips for half the price mm. and it was yeah just really really it was lovely to have that many people around you again uh but, but also weird uh, yeah but also the and all that uh I think a really positive thing I've enjoyed in lockdown as a kind of gay man in a rural area is not having to, well, not having to be, but not feeling hypervigilant all the time because I haven't been near people. Yeah. And I think going, in, going into uh, these heterosexual pubs again kind of triggered a lot of that stuff. So that was quite angst inducing, but that's to work through. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I, these people are like, oh, we're going to get back to normal. And like, there's no more normal. The normal's gone. There's, it's oh, all been no. turned on its Absolutely. head you know so yeah. maybe the maybe maybe this time we'll be lucky and the queers will take over <laughs> i hope so i thought you were going to burst into song there maybe next time i'll be lucky uh, no I but i did use case. cabaret there because of that reason <laughs> you did i'm impressed i got it i got it 
I hope that that's the case. My fear is that thing we all said in lockdown that okay, now's the time to rebuild so many things, and then uh, certainly with friends of mine and myself included in this, that sense of all oh, the pubs are open and the hairdressers are open. Let's go and get a haircut and have a pint and forget rebuilding things. Mm. Just mean it feels like we had such an opportunity to reflect and rebuild and almost rebel a little bit, and then we can all go to uh, Mallorca and have a pint. We forgot to. So I yeah. hope there's still space for, certainly in the theatre, I think in advent of the Black Lives Matter movement as well, theatre has been very, very vocal about what it can do, but uh, whether it will mm, remains to be seen. to see, yeah. aren't we? Yeah, I think Absolutely. the more, the more norm, like, you know, my theory was when they decided to open the pubs again, it's because they were realising that people were taking matters into their own hands and being too independent of the government. And, yeah. you know, being more focused on community grassroots things, um, you know, even like normal people that wouldn't usually get involved with that stuff. And then they've just been tempting people back into this sense of normality by opening up various things to distract yes. people again. That's my my tinfoil hat theory. Um, no, I think more mine with the theatres, it feel the fact that you can sit in an airplane in the air with strangers but can't go to the theatre feels staggering. And it feels political as well, I think. Mm. there's always that conspiracy theory in your head that says okay the people that might work in theatre and go to the theatre stereotypically won't vote Tory and also if you go to listen to a spoken word artist or you go and listen to a playwright uh, they're going to tell you the truth mm. about your community and you're going to reimagine your community in that space and people are harder to lie to and govern to if they get together and uh, people tell them the truth yeah so I think it feels really political that they're letting theatres art centres gig venues counterculture uh, perish a little bit I think it's very very uh, strategic yeah I agree it's um it's worrying for the long term but then I think Absolutely. I, I, on a positive note I think people are very resilient um, they are and people are know, always going to want and it adaptable and... like yeah. there's, there's one thing about lockdowns taught me about the poetry scene is that how adaptable we are absolutely and how it's just made us all savvier freelancers just talking to lots of peers and lots of friends just uh we've all realized we want to stick around so that means we've got to learn new tools and that doing online gigs and online workshops and uh more tools about self-promotion or whatever it is i think however drastic it's been for venues it has empowered and educated us in so many different ways as freelancers yeah absolutely i would agree with that mm. amen amen Amen. <laughs> Amen. Um, so, James, I'm going to yes. ask you if you would like to treat us to a poem. Do you have one you'd like me to read, or do you just want me to pick anything? I would love for you to read one from Child, I think, from the first okay. section of the book. I will read one I've really, really enjoyed doing on the online readings. So, this is a poem about the first time I heard the word gay. And this is a poem called Spice Girls Dolls. 1998. Happy Meals, T.Y. Beanie Babies and Tops TV. A Saturday afternoon in Toys R Us. Mum and Dad say I can pick any gift I want to celebrate my first full week at school. I could have a toy, Budgie the Little Helicopter or Remote Control Brom. But I don't want either of those things. I want a posh spice doll. Dad suggests a Tamagotchi. Mum tells Dad that a Tamagotchi won't spice up my life. Dad tells Mum that she's not to buy me a girl's doll. Gay boys play with dolls. And this is the first time I hear that word. I don't know what it means, but I know it can't mean something nice because of the way Dad spits it out of his mouth. 
whilst I don't know what that word means, my ears burn when I hear it. Like mum said ears are supposed to when someone is talking about you. So I asked dad what it means. Dad tells me that it um, it's, uh, means happy, someone. I ask him if he's gay then. He says, no, I'm not gay. I'm married to your mother. I know being gay doesn't mean being happy. Why would dad be this angry about me being a happy boy? Whatever nasty thing it really means, I realise it has something to do with dolls. I only want a Posh Spice doll as I want to see what's under a dress. I only want a Posh Spice doll as I love the Spice Girls and want all the merchandise. But then and there I vow that I'll try to stop playing with dolls. Then Dad won't be angry. Then I won't be a gay boy. I think I've still got that Tamagotchi. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. There's the clap. I love that poem. I think, like, uh, yeah, I uh, grew up, grew up in, a, in a family where gay was a bad word. Yes. And um, used it throughout my life in a, in a derogatory way. And even after I came out as bisexual, I was like still using gay in a derogatory way. And I think language is so interesting. But I really like, I really. I'm, I'm imagining you as a child, like obsessing over posh spice. Oh, Bridget, I did. I was quite something. I was obsessed, <laughs> obsessed with the Spice Girls, and had uh, the poem slightly dramatised in the sense my parents, both of them, kind of did let me have Spice Girls trainers and Spice Girls dolls, and were, in hindsight, quite supportive of it. I was kind of doing all the dance routines with the girl next door. She'd come round, and we'd do Spice Up Your Life together. Uh, I don't know what it was. I think. I was saying to someone yesterday in another interview about the book, that sense of looking back on it, it I was obsessed with five women. That feels pretty heterosexual to me, but everyone obviously sees it differently through that filter of you're obsessed with strong women who are singing about men and loving men. So it's that really interesting obsession with girl bands when you were a young gay boy, that sense of, uh, it feels like it's speaking to every component of you. There is that heterosexual element in that sense of, okay, do I really fancy these five women or do I want to be them instead and sing about men? So, yeah, yeah, I was just obsessed with the Spice Girls. I really don't know what it was. I think it was just there was something, there was something feminine and something powerful. It uh, was unique. Like, nothing yeah. like them had happened for our generation no. before, you know. It was, it was exciting. And there was, like, these archetypes and you could pick whatever one you wanted to be. And, you know. Yes. And also, yeah. Spice World, the movie, in my opinion, is one of the greatest films of all time. I love it because Sir Roger Moore is in there, which is the most ridiculous <laughs> bit of casting ever. And I'm a huge, huge Bond fan, which I can't understand sometimes. But uh, just seeing Sir Roger Moore in that film, just again, yeah, it's kind of up there with Some Like It Hot for me because Sir Roger Moore's in it. Yeah. You know, I'm actually into James Bond as well. Like, I just watched them all as a kid and just, like, they're just part of my, my childhood. Like, is that what you think it is, nostalgia? Because I really interrogate what I got from it. Because I was uber obsessed with Bond after Spice Girls. It kind of came around seven mm. and I wanted to be James Bond and wrote my own Bond films and acted them out in the garden. I was obsessed. <laughs> and then looking back on it, it's the most heteronormative, sexist thing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I don't know what I got from it. I can see no. what Spice Girls was doing for me nascently, but I can't see what that did. Do you know why you loved it? Is it just that nostalgia? I don't know. I just thought it was funny. Like It is so camp, it's, isn't it? It's so it's, camp. Like, the original yeah. was so camp. And then when I was older, I remember the first film that I watched that came out when I was, you know, old enough to watch them, which, which, which was Goldeneye. Yes. And 
I'm sorry, but like on a top with her name. Zena on a top, yeah. You know, Sexiest I was woman. That's what I mean. Like, so that was my like entry point of women of James Bond was her and me being okay. like, who is this woman? She's yeah. incredible. I'm ten. I want to marry her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh I god, she. That, what a fantastic Bond girl to meet first. Yeah. on a top. Absolutely, and you know, like that for me is one of the best the best films um it's a great film but i just i I don't know i just think it's funny it just makes me laugh it is yeah i think that hearing you say that that's probably what i got from it that sense of roger moore in particular roger moore is my bond the first bond film i saw was live and let die yeah uh and just the the witty one-liners the ridiculous flared trousers roger moore would wear uh yeah it's 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 the campus thing yeah, and I, 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 back to like Spice World as well, the bit where he's got the bunny and then he just says like these weird philosophical proverbs <laughs> all the time. Like <laughs> I, I'm like, I love um, Richard E. Grant. So yes. for me, that, that him in that film, like just crippled me with laughter. So I just find him so funny. And it's one of those British films that has been cast really well. You know, Bob Hoskins yeah. coming out of the, the telephone box. It has the most fantastic cast when you say it. I forgot Rich D. Grant and Bob Hoskins are in it with Sir Roger Moore. It's so good. It's so insane. You know, Bob Geldof, (laughs) you know, Scary Spice does his hair. It's just so good. good. (laughs) You know, if you're (laughs) this and you're like, what the fuck? What the fuck is Spice World the movie? Um, And you need to go and show your kids this film because it's incredible. It's so good. Does it stand the test of time? I haven't seen it for years. Is it worth a watch just for the kitsch nostalgia? Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, um, I think you should. That's how I'll justify it intellectually. I'll just love it as a fanboy, but <laughs> I'll, I'll need to justify it intellectually. You might get a poem out of this. There's a haiku in it somewhere. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. So, James, yeah. it's been so good talking to you today. Yes, and you. Um, thank like, you for having me. Thank you for coming on, and thank you so much for your amazing book. Um, it's, been an absolute, it. it's been an absolute pleasure to, to work with you and to publish the book. Um, what a journey it's been. I know. I know. I know. It's not over yet. We've got to do it in person. And we're hopefully going to do a tour next year. Uh, yes. If it's possible and safe. We're going to do the Standard Kind of Art Centre tour, but I would love to take it into gyms. Uh, okay. I really, I really want to perform it in gyms. I don't know how I'm going to navigate it, but it's just, it was an idea that came to me when I was editing and there's a poem in there about gyms being like gay bars. Uh, and I thought, yeah. oh, God, go into gyms because they're really going to scare you. And they're really performative spaces. Yeah. Uh, so try and do gigs in gyms if you can't do gigs in theatres. I really hope I get to do that. Well, James, I'll let you go. But it's been so, uh, yes. fantastic to talk to you. I'm really Likewise. glad that um, we've got the book out. Um, if you're listening at home and you want to buy the book, you can buy it from the Burning Eye website, burningeyebooks.co.uk. Um, or you can get it directly from James. Um, James, what's your website? So you can buy it from the online shop at jamesmcdermott.bigcartel.com. Great. And and I would recommend getting it directly from James because James will probably sign it for you. And I will. will get um, more of the profits from the sale. And that's what Burning Eye is all about. Um, so, yeah, amazing. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, mate. Thank you for asking me too. And thanks again for publishing the book.